Imagine you are a farmer in a third world nation and your crops are rendered useless because the government of your country imported your exact same crop for less than you require to live. Imagine being in business as a dairy and the entire contents of your inventory are seized and destroyed because you didn't fill out the proper paperwork. Both of these scenarios are real, and both of them happened because of government. One was due to multinational trade deals, and one because of regulations and the power of the state. The theme to fix both of these is food sovereignty and decentralized food. The Culinary Libertarian Podcast, episode 110. Welcome to the Culinary Libertarian Podcast, where the philosophy is free, but the food is on you. Hello, folks. Dan Reed here, the Culinary Libertarian. Welcome back to the podcast. Happy to have you here. Happy to be here. With cool weather approaching, or... Here, now is a perfect time to order my cookbook, Cooking for Comfort. I put in it a lot of soup recipes and some roasting recipes for warm tummy hugs on cold days. Find the link and reader-submitted photos of their dishes at culinarylibertarian.com slash cookingforcomfort. There is also an option to purchase a signed and personalized book on that page. This fall, I want you to get fat. Get real fat. The good stuff. Rendered pork fat and duck fat and beef fat for all your cooking. Dump those so-called vegetable oils and get real fat with my link com slash get fat. It's a solo episode today. I've written two posts on food sovereignty, and this follows in those steps. It's more of a how I got here and what comes next. But also, I've become a bit vocal on social media and my blog about the food sovereignty concept, what they get right, and what they get wrong. I address some of that here, too. Food sovereignty. What does that phrase mean to you? I suppose, more importantly, what does it mean to the people in charge of food and the people in charge of transportation? In his book, Life, Liberty, and the Pursuit of Food Rights, David Gumpert writes that food sovereignty is, quote, a highly charged political and legal dispute affecting the entire movement for food rights, end quote. Gumpert's book is mostly about raw food, particularly raw milk and milk products, and how state government and agencies for the general government, the FDA and the USDA, can and do interfere with the production processing, distributing, and selling of unapproved foods. 
This is important to understand when hearing the phrase food rights. Do you have a right to food? That's a good question. Who determines if you do or do not have a right to food? The FDA and the USDA are in no hurry to let you have that right. Neither are some judges. Gumpert writes of a judge in Wisconsin who, quote, ruled in 2012 that private herd share and food club operations run by two different farms violated the state's retail and strict dairy laws, and there is no right even to drink milk from your own cow if it isn't licensed, end quote. Back some episodes ago, I spoke with Michael Bolden from the Tenth Amendment Center about, in part, food sovereignty. For us, in the conversation, we meant that people have access to food. Well, okay, that brings up a question, and I'm going to get to that. Part of the talk was that food sovereignty means eating the food you grow on your land in your backyard. Now, the question of what does food sovereignty mean has grown to dozens or more rabbit holes. It started with the simple observation that people should be allowed even the phrase is terrible, be allowed, to eat or drink the food they grow. Currently, food sovereignty includes global trade packs, farmers being put out of work due to imports, the industrialization of corn and beef in the U.S., and in these cases, and the raw milk, we find governments. But food sovereignty is also for some groups, an end to private property and an end to profit. What does food access mean? That's a good question. It's another good question. I want to start with this. Our table is a community roundtable discussion hosted by Michigan State University. In November 2017, the Our Table representative Abby Harper spoke with Dilly Chapage, I'm sure I mispronounced that name, and asked him, what does food access mean? Dilly responded, quote, food access is an environment where all people at all times have access to sufficient resources so they can obtain safe, culturally appropriate, and healthy food through a sustainable food system, end quote. Whether Dilly meant to or not, his definition is very similar to the definition of food sovereignty as published by the Declaration of the Forum for Food Sovereignty, Nilini, which took place in Mali, 2007. As was the case from my talk with Michael, and raw milk to the many rabbit holes, that definition of access leads to another rabbit hole. What is culturally appropriate food? That isn't a question wholly for this episode, but it is a question worth asking and discussing. There is another issue, again, not for this episode, but something to think about 
and it is a critique of the word count on several of those pages. Many of the pages I've read are needlessly wordy. Why that matters to me is perception. From their writing, they earnestly want to be attended to. These groups probably are. I discussed the phrases neoliberal and capitalism in a blog piece I'll link to on today's show notes page, culinarylibertarian.com slash 110. Both phrases appear often in the literature for food sovereignty, but no effort is made to explain the terms. My take on that tactic is you are supposed to know what those phrases mean, and if you don't, you should stop what you're doing and go find out. I also think there is some projection that if they use it, it must be important. That's sloppy writing in my view. I feel the same way about the repeated use of the phrase culturally appropriate food. Where do we stop going back in history and say this is where the food line lives? Do the Italians have no claim to tomatoes? Do the Irish have no claim to potatoes? I read it as a power play or attention-seeking or both, and both positions are weak. Our friend Ken Albala, the actual food historian, said that culturally appropriate food is whatever you want to eat today, wherever you are in the world. I'm extrapolating his definition, which was simpler than that. So I'm being verbose as I'm complaining about being verbose. No one owns food or food culture. To suggest such is to overlook centuries of trade and travel. I want to pick up on a rabbit hole word I mentioned at the beginning of the show, and that is food rights. But before we go down that rabbit hole, let me tell you about my affiliate, Brodo. I've talked about making stocks for soups and sauces. Well-made stocks is a skill and, to be honest, a bit of a craft. It can be mastered with time. Brodo can cut that time down to a click on a web page. You can purchase chef-made stocks the way stocks are supposed to be made and get excellence every time. With winter approaching, soups are the go-to food. A beef soup simmering in the crock pot, ready and waiting for you, is a great thing. Make that great thing grand with stocks from Brodo. Chef Marco Canora, a James Beard award-winning chef, started Brodo at his New York City restaurant, Hearth. Now Marco makes those same stocks available to you. Pick from chicken bone broth, beef bone broth, hearty bone broth, a Marco signature broth, and seaweed mushroom broth, which is organic and vegan. Use my affiliate link, culinarylibertarian.com slash broth. From that website, you can download the Brodo recipe PDF. Get warm and stay healthy with bone broth from Brodo. Brodo stocks are made the way I would make them, then they're frozen to keep in the freshness. Brodo stocks are shipped to you frozen so you get the best broth Brodo and Marco have to offer. 
Check the website to see how you can get free shipping on your order. Subscribe to the broth company that Bon Appetit, Grub Street, and Epicurious all rave about. Click culinarylibertarian.com slash broth to start stocking up today. Now let's get back to the show. Food rights. What that means, of course, is your right to have food or, here's that phrase again, to have access to food. The website righttofood.org has a post called The Right to Food, written by Jean Ziegler. Ziegler was the UN Human Rights Council president and gets very grand in his scope, taking the right to food as a legal right. Discussions about rights can be tricky business. The rabbit hole of positive and negative rights is not for this episode, but a primer seems appropriate. Negative rights require no labor from another to make that right happen. The right to free speech does not need anybody else for you to speak. Positive rights, the right to health care or exercising that right, depends at least on the doctor to attend to the patient. So, negative rights can be exercised by all parties at all times without conflict. Positive rights cannot be. What is omitted in this food rights piece is how the food, which Ziegler explains is the right of everyone, is produced, meaning who plants the seeds, tends to the garden, harvests the crop, and ships the stuff. Bringing food rights back home, a quick internet search will produce a clever, if not dated, declaration of food independence. Gumpert includes a different version at the end of his book. The spirit of the declaration is that voluntary interaction and exchange is not and ought not be the affairs of any government. The declaration in Gumpert's book was written by the Raw Milk Food Writers for a 2012 demonstration. The plain language of this passage indicates their position. Quote, the undersigned respectfully submit that we will reject, via peaceful noncompliance, laws and regulations that infringe on our rights to obtain and eat the foods of our choice. We would rather be struck by the hand of the oppressor than comply with laws and regulations that compromise our dignity and demoralize the very essence of what it means to be a free person, end quote. That is unambiguous and plain. They intend to live lives of voluntary interaction. I want to move to the individual's us and what we can do today to take steps toward food sovereignty. But before I do that, here's Jake with a mention about his podcast, Tasting Anarchy. Hey everyone, Jake here, host of the Tasting Anarchy podcast. Join my co-host Mason and I each week as we explore the world of wine and alcohol through a liberty lens. You can find us on all your major podcatchers, tastinganarchy.com or Tasting Anarchy on Twitter. Tasting Anarchy, your wine and liberty podcast. Find out how much government is in your drink. Food sovereignty starts with the individual. The individual is what the raw milk freedom riders were talking about. In food sovereignty, the main goal is to grow and consume 
your food, sell or barter your excess as you see fit, all without the overreaching burdensome regulations of the overlords. It is such a simple idea, but so hard to practice. Thomas Jefferson said of liberty that it is best obtained by inches. Food sovereignty, too, is a slow process. To get where we want to be, free of the state, we may need to get their help. In Oregon, the small farm school teaches farmers how to farm better, how to transfer that farm to the next generation, or pass it to somebody else not of the bloodline. Sponsors for this impressive effort include private businesses and Oregon State University Extension Service and Clackamas Community College. I may have butchered that name. Another source for local food sovereignty is the Friends of Family Farmers. Their vision statement reads, quote, Friends of Family Farmers envisions an Oregon where the food system is dominated by thriving, socially and ecologically responsible family farms, end quote. Those are good starts. I know the University of Florida has an agricultural extension office, which is pretty impressive. When I lived in Florida, I used that resource often. I don't know, but there seems a good shot that most state universities have ag extension offices, and I happen to know that Michigan State University also does. There is a segue which works, and as it happens, is necessary to get out of the mainstream food system. Build a community. But read, I already live in one. Yeah, yeah. The hard part has probably already been done for you. Surely there is a butcher shop in your town that isn't part of the grocery store. Private fishmongers and weekend flea markets where cottage food vendors sell their wares are good steps toward developing a food sovereignty system and food sovereign community where you live. And just to remind you, the goal of food sovereignty on this show is to remove from our lives as much government as possible. The crossover between cottage food and food sovereignty is an important building block for community. Now, I want to just a moment about what community is, and that's actually another episode coming up, but it's not just the town where you live. It can be your... Um, Elks Club or Moose Club or various lodges. It can be the people you work with that share common interests. It can be baseball teams. It can be book clubs. Whatever community of some people sharing a common interest, that's a community. And it doesn't need to be thousands of people. It can be two. It, can, it actually can be one. But two is twice as effective as one. Farmers, such as Joel Salatin of Polyface Farms, has shown well how the small farm working with the community can succeed. It isn't easy. The government is not simply going to go away. 
Other ways families and individuals can work toward food sovereignty is with preserving and canning foods. Even if you have to buy your vegetables from the grocery store, putting them up in your pantry is your food security. Food security, another term that needs defining. Food security, as defined by the United Nations Committee on World Food Security, that term, quote, means that all people at all times have physical, social, and economic access to sufficient, safe, and nutritious food that meets their food preferences and dietary needs for an active and healthy life, end quote. Remember I said word needlessly wordy? Food sovereignty, food access, and food security have an overlap. That seems to be a good thing. We can address all three of these things at the same time with the same actions. Decentralized food. That is the action. The practice is shop at the private butcher shop and don't get your meat at the grocery store. Shop cottage food vendors at the flea market or Check your local Facebook page. In Oregon, cottage food vendors can add, can advertise is the wrong word, can make their presence known on social media. Oregon has rules about how they can advertise. Check your local state about that. And I'll put a link on the show notes page for the cottage food laws state by state. That's going to be culinarylibertarian.com slash 110. Here, and most of anywhere above the Mason-Dixon line, it's winter. Not, no, not snow, but there are places with snow. And getting fresh produce can be a challenge, so that brings us back to the canning and preserving aspect. But food sovereignty is gained by inches to repurpose Jefferson. Even as winter arrives, you can plan your spring start to your food sovereignty and security. Plan your garden. Learn to compost. Check your neighborhood for folks with great gardens and ask them if they'll show you how they succeeded. The best part about neighbors is the soil and the climate are the same, so you know that insight is good. My plan with this episode is to give you some ideas on how to make yourself a little bit more independent when it comes to food and sourcing food. When the world was fine, talk about the old ways was met with scorn or at least a little bit of a giggle. Now there is a higher urgency to know how to can food and how to grow produce. It is never too late to learn and is never too late to start. Plot your own garden space. Shop for seeds. <laughs> Just by the way, that's shop carefully because boy, howdy, that's fun. And make good homemade hot chocolate. All right, folks, that's going to do it. I'll have both food sovereignty blog posts linked on the show notes page. I'll also add that cottage food blog page I mentioned. If you are interested in starting a cottage food business in your state, you'll need to know what the state expects. I know that sounds strange after this episode about getting government out of the business, but 
Remember, we gain by inches, and we may need them to start advancing. All small steps forward are an advance forward. That's redundant. For that hot chocolate I mentioned, you'll need a proper mug. Visit my mug store, culinarylibertarian.com slash gearbubble to shop the selection ranging from political, duh, to quotes from movies and other things, or to knitting and baking. Please share this episode on social media, and if you saw it on social media, like that post. Also, please rate and review the podcast on your favorite podcatcher. Have a great week, and I'll see you soon. Music for the Culinary Libertarian Podcast is provided by Matthew Bankert at mattbankert.com.